Welcome back to the Locker Room Podcast, a new sports business podcast hosted by the Sports Business Society at the University of Maryland. I'm Marco Madunio, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Joe Castiglione, who graduated from the University of Maryland in 1979 and has been the Oklahoma Sooners athletic director since 98. He's widely regarded as one of, if not the best athletic director in the country. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for uh, allowing me to join what I think is a very, very important um, endeavor. Not so much this podcast, you know, people will uh, judge it as they will, but the fact that you're doing this, you know, for uh, people's interests and most notably for students uh, or others that are interested in getting into the sports business world as a career. So start off, I just want to go a little bit into your background. So what was your journey like from Maryland to ultimately getting the job as the AD at Oklahoma? Well, my journey to Maryland wasn't necessarily so uh, smooth either, <laughs> but um, I cannot um, I cannot think of one thing I'd do over again um, in terms of choosing to go to the University of Maryland, uh, the, the path that led me to uh, change my major between my junior and senior year um, and really take a risk to get into uh, sports business, um, sports administration, and try to do it on the ground floor um, in, in the area of sports marketing and promotion. Now, that seems like impossible. How could you get in on the ground floor? Hasn't that been around since air? <laughs> but uh, it really was um, a brand new endeavor back in the uh, mid to late 70s for college athletics. And the University of Maryland was literally regarded as uh, maybe the pioneer in sports marketing. And uh, the person that I worked for, I think was a previous guest on a podcast, Russ Potts, was the, the uh, pioneer himself of sports marketing in the collegiate space. Now, Maryland wasn't the only school uh, endeavoring to be in sports marketing at that time, but there were very few. Um, Louisville was one and Michigan was the other. So I really felt like the idea that um, I could take some of the experiences that I had as a student at Maryland parlay that to a chance to get into the uh, business of sports administration with the idea of becoming an athletic director would be a, a worthwhile path. And if it didn't work, you know, I, I wouldn't regret it, you know, because you have to try things and be risk, willing to be risk taking um, to try to move yourself forward. And so that's, that's the place where it started for me. And um, I remember distinctly uh, writing every single division one program in the, in the uh, uh, beginning of my final semester as a student at Maryland. Um, I think at that time there were 86 schools that were considered division one programs. We know the classification has evolved in a variety of different ways since then, but uh, 81, excuse me, 86 that were considered division one. I wrote the athletic director at every single one of them, making a pitch, making my case, you know, to try to be the person they'd hire for this brand new endeavor. 
In fact, I was having to sell them on the idea of why they'd need a sports marketing division of their athletic program. Most, most people hadn't heard much about sports marketing. And I remember uh, the response rate was low. I didn't, uh, I didn't get many letters in return, but I'd say out of 86, I probably received six or seven and um, all but one was thanks but no thanks if we decide to do something we'll let you know but one was a maybe and the one that was a maybe said that they were considering the possibility of developing a sports marketing program and they get back in touch with me and they did and they brought me in for an interview in early April. I was offered and accepted the job at the beginning of May, graduated 18 days later, and started my full-time journey in the college athletic space, July 1, 1979. And that university that gave me my first chance at full-time job was Rice University in Houston, Texas. Now, going into some current events, COVID has obviously played a major impact on the sports industry. Um, you guys have been fortunate enough that you've been able to have fans in limited capacity, but it's a constant battle getting fans to follow the protocols and creating an atmosphere that's both safe and still fun. Um, I know after your first game, you came out with comments saying that not all the fans were following the protocols and that they needed to do better. So since then, has it been any easier getting fans to wear masks, social distance, and what steps have you taken to improve the situation? So short answer is, uh, I wouldn't say it's any easier, but they have uh, become far more compliant. You have to uh, think back, it seems like years ago, it was only in September, we were one of the first college programs to have a football game. You know, the Big 12 uh, and the ACC started about the same time. There were a few games before us. Uh, the NFL started the same weekend we did. So they didn't really have any, any, any role models, you know, to follow when uh, they experienced it for the first time themselves. Uh, most everybody that came were just thrilled to be able to go to a game because many uh, programs were not allowing fans. Um, even in the NFL, there's still some that have allowed fans, some that don't have any fans. And uh, that's still evolving. Uh, we settled on a capacity of a, about 25%, which is, you know, 22, 23,000 people you know, in our current stadium configuration. And that's with all the distancing protocols in place. And we were very straightforward, blunt about the expectations. In the first game, I thought they did a really fine job, but not a good enough job. Uh, and we know perfect is probably an impossibility as a goal. You know, we're pursuing that. Um, but what happened in the first game is people were compliant coming in and through the stadium and got to the seat 
And once the game got involved and they started yelling and they started getting concessions and they're eating, they're putting their mask down and then some of them are forgetting to put the mask up. And the students came in and not only, you know, didn't comply very well, I would not say everybody, but it, you know, it was a noticeable number that were um, not complying. And they weren't just complying by uh, their proper use of, of how you wear a mask in the appropriate way. They were foregoing the seating protocols and all gathering together back like they normally did. And you have to think about that too. Um, and we can be harsh uh, about looking at criticizing them as a group. And, and in all fairness, you know, many of them hadn't seen their friends. And that was the first social gathering, albeit with distancing protocols, masking protocols that they had had since school had gotten in session. We, um, we only have about half the uh, classes that are in person. And of those classes, there's a limit of 40 people per class. And then classes, you know, seating is distanced and they're usually in bigger halls. And so um, unless you live with someone, you know, they were already, um, I guess you could say discouraging people from having parties or going to bars, you know, and it's just unnatural for all of us as human beings to just think we're going to be by ourselves all the time. There's a, from my memory, there's a thing they use in prison when you get in trouble in prison, and that's called solitary confinement. So they take you out of prison and put you in another cell when you're by yourself for hours or days on end. You know, people crave being around each other. And so, um, in a way, you could kind of understand it because, you know, it was a beautiful night and they're having a chance to see each other. And they just kind of naturally gravitated together. But for us to um, be able to have fans in the stands and for us to obviously do our part to make it safe and keep health and wellness, you know, in mind, we had to be very stringent in our control. And um, we were pretty open about that between the first and the second game. And we actually um, reset uh, some of the distancing and seating protocols. We were far more um, uh, visually explicit of where they had to sit, uh, sit and stay and that there would be um, ongoing mask enforcement. We have mask ambassadors. You know, and uh, they go around and they find people who aren't wearing their mask and keep encouraging them to wear it. Now, you know, people want to be smart alecky and put it up when they're walking around and then pull it down and they do, but we're going to keep walking around and keep telling the same people. And if they just get defiant, then we've told them that two things are going to happen. Either we're going to have to um, reduce the seating capacity for students or you are contributing to our ability to have fans in the stands. And we don't want that to happen. You know, we don't want to make idle threats or crazy threats. That's not what we're about. And it's not easy or comfortable for us to even enforce all that, but we have to. And um, we just said, look, if you don't want to wear a mask, it's your prerogative. Just do not come to the game. Don't come to the game, put yourself and us and everybody around through 
you know, just, you know, an uncomfortable situation if you're just not going to wear the mask. Simply put, it's non-negotiable. And so I would say there was a enormous improvement from the first second game. I don't know if we'll ever get perfect, but very noticeable and marked improvement. And that's the only two games we've had. You know, we've, uh, we've been on the road for the last five weeks. So we don't have another home game until a week from Saturday or November 7th, um, you know, to see uh, how much improvement we can make from the second to the third game. The fact that so much time has elapsed since our last game, we're probably going to have to retrain everybody like it was the first game. I don't know how good the retention's going to be. So I know Oklahoma is an innovative university. So have you had any discussions with technology companies to develop some tech that could help you adapt to sports in the pandemic world? Oh, yes, we have. And not only uh, post-pandemic, but pre-pandemic. Uh, we've gone to a virtually contactless experience. Now, let me explain what that means. Um, the last couple of years, we have experimented with developing technology. Uh, digital ticketing, it's not brand new, but it's, it's been around for four or five years. Um, and we've experimented with that. Uh, we've experimented with um, digital parking. We've experimented with uh, app development so uh, fans can order items from the concession stands or from the apparel stands uh, without you know, having to transact the business piece of that um, uh, experience with cash or a credit card. So it takes the touch points, if you will, out of that experience with one, it, before the pandemic, we were creating better, um, a better experience because you can expedite everything. You know, rather than waiting in long lines, one can sit at their seat if they're with somebody or a group, you know, order everything they want and go to the concession stand and there's an express lane they can pick it up. It's already paid for, go back to their seat and look how much faster, you know, you miss, you know, only a little bit of the game. Um, so it just enhances the experience regardless of that, the additional health pieces uh, related to it. Um, but, uh, and, and soon we're gonna have delivery at seats. Our stadium is an older stadium, so it's not the easiest to get around as some of the you know, new stadiums that are already designed with this in mind. But we're, we're trying to recreate what will be the new, um, uh, you know, I guess you could call them stadium hawkers. You know what a hawker is? You know, the people that used to walk around with um, trays of soft drinks or in places where they sell beer or uh, peanuts, popcorn, the things that they can go up and down the aisles with a tray. So you don't have to get up and go to the concession stands. You could just buy it right there at your seat. Well, this new digital experience will allow us to deliver um, items that people order at their seats. So we will have a um, in-stadium version of Uber Eats or Postmates or Grubhub or, 
you know, any one of those that deliver to your home, but now you'll be able to deliver it right to somebody's seat and you can order specifically what you want from the concession stands. And so all that's evolving. And we were trying to be innovative on the front end of this. And it just so happened with the pandemic, it accelerated the development. So now we digital parking, digital ticketing, the app development where you could order, um, you know, whenever you want, you've already entered your credit card, credit card gets charged for whatever you, you order, you go pick up your food, little to no waiting, and you go back to your seat. Um, but there'll be more and more things that we can do um, digitally, probably more fan engagement with the game itself. You know, we're, we're uh, totally wireless now in our stadium, so that obviously allows us to continue to develop more and more options for the fans. I'll tell you this, um, we always know and always talk about our competition. Um, we, TVs are bigger, the quality of the pictures are bigger. Obviously, you know, you don't have to have the, the challenges for going to games and parking and walking and the time and all that when you can have, you know, a, uh, an experience in your home. There's one thing they can't replicate, and that's what it's like to be in the stadium on game day or the arena. And so we have to figure out a way that is worth everybody's time to make sure their experience is great for coming to the game. And uh, we don't worry about the television being, you know, always the reason people don't come to game. Right. And I'm all on board for delivery to seats, by the way. I've missed too many innings on a concession line. Yeah. It's coming. I mean, why not? It, it's uh, you could you could have your own customized order and have it delivered to your seat. So shifting gears a little bit, um, you've been very successful when it comes to hiring head coaches, Lon Kruger in basketball, and then of course on the football side, Bob Stoops and Lincoln Riley, who will most certainly be um, talked about for several NFL openings this off season. So when it comes to finding a head coach to be the face of your program, what are the things, the certain attributes that you're looking for? Uh, culture catalysts. That's okay. what I would call, um, you know, the way to sum up, you know, the combination of the intellect, skill set, character, self-awareness, confidence, uh, teacher, mentor, motivator, um, and, and uh, you know, the, the person that has, you know, the, the idea of how they want to develop, build, and create, you know, the most sustainable program in, in their sport. So a similar blueprint for every coach that I hire. And uh, I always believe that culture wins. Um, yes, you need uh, the right, you know, the right personnel. Um, yes, you have to have, you know, good tactical approach, your schemes, um, you know, the, the organizational detail, everything you do to um, form a team, create the chemistry, you know, develop, you know, the game plan and, and give yourself the best chance to execute the plan as it's designed. And you're going up, in our case, against the best of the best in, in all the opponents. So you're, we, we know we're going to be playing tough games week in and week out. And um, so 
you want somebody who has, you know, the true inner confidence to, uh, you know, to lead in, in a way that their staff and most notably, you know, their, their players will follow. Um, sounds easy. You know, you could write it all up and put it on a piece of paper and create a blueprint and show somebody and it doesn't work that way. You know, that's why you see such differences between, um, you know, some of the programs that succeed um, periodically versus some that are, are sustaining a high level of success over a period of time. And yes, you know, we know, you know, every time you set goals to play against the best and be the best and pursue championships, you know, we're not always going to win them even though we're going at it with all the you know, possible energy we can muster. Um, and we know the fan base will say what they want because that's sports. You know, they, they're going to be happy. They're going to be times when they're disappointed. They're going to be happy, times when they're questioning what's going on, times when they want to give up, you know, and you have to be able to have the people that understand um, what continuous improvement is all about internally, um, the ability to keep working to, you know, allow their, their team to be at its best when, you know, they compete, but um, to be, you know, be focused on things that are in their control. And, uh, and I think those key characteristics I mentioned early, and I sum it up as culture catalysts, you know, are, are you know, the, you know, the, the type of people that fit that profile are the ones that, you know, I think would always succeed. And no doubt, you know, that those that you mentioned, um, Coach Stoops, Coach Riley, Coach Kruger, uh, you know, got a Hall of Fame women's basketball coach and Sherry Cole, um, Patty Gasso, our women's softball coach has won four national championships. Uh, our gymnastics coach has won four national championships and those two coaches literally have a you know are considered the gold standard coaches in their sports and uh, you know I feel very blessed very very privileged you know to be working with coaches like that on a day-to-day -day basis and they're just as good at being available for other coaches the up-and-coming coaches we have on our staff you know you we have a head coaches meeting and you look to your left, you look to your right, or you look across the table and you're seeing many coaches that have won national championships. Mark Williams, our men's gymnastics coach, he's won nine, nine national championships. That's this crazy, crazy number. And his team has never finished below third in the, in, in the finals. I mean, that's just, you know, that's consistency. And so um, that, that is, you know, why I feel so blessed to be at Oklahoma, uh, be around, you know, great people. But quality attracts quality. And when we do have an opening, that makes it very, um, you know, very attractive for a coach in another sport to consider coming to Oklahoma because they see the overall culture that has the student-athlete um, model for success as its priority. Um, our, our student athletes are truly the priority and we're trying to create not just a world-class experience, but the, 
because of that world-class experience, this becomes the destination for student-athletes to pursue their, their athletic goals, their academic goals, and feel like they'll also develop you know, so very well as, as people. So they have the skills to be ready for what life puts in front of them when um, their career is complete. Mm -hmm. So you're one of the 13 members of the College Football Playoff Selection Committee, meaning you're responsible for choosing the four college football teams that get to compete for a national championship at the end of the season. So could you just tell me more about what the selection process is like? Because I can imagine it gets pretty intense. Well, it does, because every one of the 13 members takes their uh, responsibility seriously. And they all come prepared, you know, to have that kind of uh, debate um, and, and um, assessment of every decision that we make, because we know whatever we decide is going to be scrutinized. And as it should be, you know, this is very important work. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's been fun to be part of, you know, the evolution of it. It's, it wasn't that long ago uh, when uh, people weren't, they weren't happy with the way that teams were being assigned to bowls subjectively. And then from there, teams were determined, you know, depending on the matchup in the bowl, you know, that they were the national champion and other teams felt like they should have been considered. So they created a whole new approach and went from bowl alliance to the bowl championship series or the bowl, or, or, or people knew it as the BCS. And, um, and that was predominantly, you know, if not exclusively driven by computers. Well, they didn't want computers picking the teams. And so they decided to expand it and have a combination of, uh, statistical analysis and the human element in making the selection now of four teams uh, that would um, play in a playoff for the national championship. Um, but, but the job starts with um, ranking one through 25. And uh, it's challenging, you know, sometimes there are teams that uh, would appear to be more um, more obvious selections. Not that it's easy. Not that it is truly obvious in that you know uh, express definition of the word. But some, because of how closely covered this is, people might be able to guess more likely a team's going to finish in one place or the other. But that's where the committee comes in. And that is, um, it's not just to assume, you know, we don't use polls we don't, in the sense of, you know, what the fans talk about, you know, we have our own analytical system. Um, we, we look at every piece of data that we can. Some committee members, um, uh, you know, because of their backgrounds, are um, you know really drilling down in in, um, in certain aspects of the game, and you know and that's good. That's a really great thing to have that diversity of thought you know that goes into it because 
everybody gets a chance to say everything they want and they should uh, so everybody hears it and that at the end you know it helps make better decisions and um, but we watch a lot of film and uh, a lot of games um, you know so you know for those of us that don't have games on Saturday you know people can you know, watch a, you know, a lot of games throughout the the day and night um, but because you know technology being what it is we also have a way to get archived um, videotape of all the other games that went on during the day and there's a website where we can go and watch those games and uh, we do so, uh, so you know again depending on people's time um, you know we have uh, you know all day Sunday and part of Monday to review all the data all the film uh, make our notes and uh, you know go in with perspectives of how we're going to discuss the teams their profile to that point reasons why we think you know you know this team would appear to be stronger than that team and uh, and then we're asked to vote and rank and that's you know uh, we go through that process quite a few times you know uh, throughout the course of um, the, the time we're together each week. And then uh, late Tuesday night, you know, the results of our, our poll um, uh, is released to the public. And uh, I can tell you that it is thorough. And I'm very proud to be associated with the 12 other members and uh, Bill Hancock and the staff of the College Football Playoff um, is, is really, yeah, I can I can attest that it is it is comprehensive, thorough. Um, everybody's diligent. Um, there's highest amount of integrity in everything that we do, and uh, you know I I come out of every of every uh, meeting feeling like we did our job. And in what has sort of become a hot topic in college football, and I'm sure it's come up in your meetings um do you see co the college football playoff expanding to eight teams and if so how soon can you see that so here's where i can uh, draw a bright line um we are asked you know to uh do our our uh, work prior to meeting our job is to identify and rank the teams that we f feel you know, fit into the top 25. And that's where our job stops. You know, we, uh, we may have opinions on questions like that, but we don't engage in any kind of discussion about hypothetical situations or even teams or the rankings that we may um, develop each week. We limit all of that to two people, and that's the, the chair of the committee um, this year it's Gary Barta um, and uh, Bill Hancock. But I will tell you that even beyond that, um, the hypothetical situations about what the playoff may be at any point in time in the future is really not going to be impacted or influenced by those that are on the committee. We have no role in that discussion whatsoever. Uh, that is made by uh, th those discussions and any ideas or thoughts that come from those that actually run the college football playoff, and that's the commissioners 
and the board of directors. Personally, I'm looking forward to expansion. I hope it comes one day. I think the more playoff games, the better. And um, it would be, it would give those teams that maybe lost one or two games early in the season some hope that they could still compete. Um, yeah, so moving on. The, the Sooners have seen some of the most impressive individual seasons in recent history, probably in all of college football. Um, since 2000, you have four Heisman Trophy winners, uh, Jason White, Sam Bradford, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, and that's not even to mention Jalen Hurts and Adrian Peterson, who probably should have won the Heisman in 2004. So do any of those individual seasons stand out to you where you stopped and you said, wow, this is really special? All of them in some way. And I always get asked, you know, what's my favorite moment? Um, I've been fortunate, you know, in the time I've been at Oklahoma, we've won 19 national championships. And that's the penultimate, you know, um, goal for us, you know, that it, it's what we pursue every year, winning a national championship. And I know from experience how hard it is, because I could tell you about all the other um, championship games or competition where we fell just a little bit short. Sometimes in sports like gymnastics, you know, two-tenths of a point, you know, three-tenths of a point. I mean, that is just as close as close can be, but still did not win. And sometimes you think you have it won and something happens and then you don't win. And, you know, so the disappointment of being that close. But the fact that, you know, our program is that consistent says a lot about the coaches and the athletes um, and the culture we talked about earlier in our podcast. But uh, I don't know, the, the moment that sticks out to me probably more than in anything, maybe because it came earlier in my career at Oklahoma, was winning the national championship in the Orange Bowl. Um, and the reason it sticks out to me is I'm born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I went to many Orange Bowl games growing up. And uh, even uh, as I um, got out of college, I still went to an Orange Bowl game here and there in, in subsequent years when I went home for the holidays. And in 1985, coincidentally, I was there when the University of Oklahoma was playing Penn State for the national, what ended up being for the national championship. And Oklahoma ended up winning that game and, and was crowned national champion in the previous way of crowning champions, like I mentioned earlier. And for whatever reason, I just had the frustration of going to those games and never being associated with a team that was in it. You know, you go to these big games and you're watching all the other teams and I, I don't know why I said to myself that night that I'm not going to go to any more Orange Bowl games until I'm coming back with a team that um, I was associated with. And so 2000, we have a magical season. We're number one in the country. We're selected to go to the Orange Bowl, and that was part of the BCS back then. So the computers, you know, ranked us number one. And we were selected number one, and Florida State was um, number two, and we beat Florida State 
for the national championship in the Orange Bowl, that game that I went to so many times growing up, you know, that, that the whole thing, uh, being associated with a team that won a national championship, all of that, that, that kind of stands out as really a unique moment. Um, so that was the second year of, of uh, Bob Stoops. And uh, so, you know, I think about athletes. I, the ones you mentioned are incredible. Um, I could talk about each and every one. I can talk about some that maybe didn't win some of those national awards, but were just as impactful in uh, helping a team be successful. Um, you know, I think about some of the other sports. Uh, you know, more recently, Blake Griffin, who was a number one overall uh, draft pick. Um, when he came out of college, uh, he was the Naismith Award winner. So he, he won the Heisman of, of basketball. And then about uh, six, seven years later, um, uh, Buddy Heald uh, wins the same award and was a, a lottery pick. Um, happened to go to the Final Four that year. Uh, I uh, Young as got well. to watch a magical freshman year for Trey Young, who only, you know, he wasn't intended to be a one and done, but he, he left after his freshman year and was a lottery pick of the Atlanta Hawks. But just this past year, um, in the past four years for that matter, maybe, maybe one of the transcendent athletes of our time uh, in any sport was Maggie Nichols, um, our gymnast. Uh, if you haven't watched the Netflix documentary called Athlete A, you should. Um, you'll, you'll understand Maggie's story. Uh, but Maggie is the most wonderful human being on top of being a transcendent gymnast. I mean, I, I had seen some tens, you know, uh, before by some of our gymnasts, as I said, we've got a great gymnastics program. I don't think I've seen one person have that many tens, multiple tens in the same meet. And, uh, you know, we won uh, a couple of national championships with her, probably would have won uh, one this year. I say probably. I know there are quite a few other teams that had something to say about that. Uh, we'll never know. Um, but uh, we had a, a championship quality team. But as you know, um, because of the pandemic, many of the sports in wintertime had their seat, as well as spring, had their seasons canceled. And so she didn't get a chance to compete in her senior year uh, for another national title. She's won the all around. She, you know, very well could have been, you know, a, a decorated Olympic gymnast as well. Um, but I, those are the kinds of experiences that we have and I have personally, and it relates to the entire reason I'm in this business, my why. You know, I, I started thinking about, how to get into business and what I was going to do and when it was going to happen. And it wasn't until many years later that I, I really came to grips with why I wanted to stay in the business. And, uh, and that was to be able to um, positively and in, in, in from my role, um, significantly influence uh, young people's 
experience to make it be everything it could be while they're in college. Because it goes back to what I said earlier. And we obviously want to do a great job attracting people here, um, the best and the brightest. But when they leave and go into their livelihood um, post sports, we want them to feel like the experience was so good in preparing them for life beyond that they, they always look back and it's one of the, the best things they could have ever done. And, you know, that's what college is about, to prepare you for the rest of life. And so when I think about that and not just being around them and watching the magnificence of their skill, but how they are as people. I could talk to you about every single one of them as people. Um, everyone you mentioned, Adrian, uh, Baker, Kyler, Blake, Buddy, uh, just, you know, okay, list could go Sam Bradford, um, Jason White, you know, there's a, also Heisman Trophy winners, um, but also the people that helped them be the Heisman Trophy winner. And every one of them understood that as good as they were, they weren't ever going to be as great as they were without the people around them. And I always felt good that they remembered that even though those awards are individual, they know they cannot happen without the right team of people around them. And that's, that's what an AD is trying to do from its role. And maybe it doesn't have, the AD doesn't have the specific role in every single aspect, but you know, from my level, I've got to ensure that the resources are there so the people that we charge with the details have the ability to make that happen. And, I always appreciated that about no matter what individual awards occur, it's always about the team and the team of people around that help others be successful. That's awesome. So now we're going to do a segment that we call the Maryland Minute. We're basically, we do it at the end of all of our episodes and we ask quick informal questions about your time at UMD, among other things. Does that sound good? Sure. Right. I don't know if I could get it all in a minute. You know, you it and me being Italian, Italian, that's a you and me being <laughs> Italian, that's a hard thing for us to, you know, work against think, our DNA. I don't think it ever really lasts a minute. That's just kind of the title we chose to be okay. had to suck. But so starting off, we ask all our guests this. Um, do you have a favorite college park restaurant? Oh hands down, Lido's. Okay. I mean, You're definitely in the majority there. I mean, that, that's probably my first, second, and third choice. There's okay. some other ones. I don't think some of them are there anymore, but Lido's was the best. Still is. I, I, I still think about, I wish I was closer to get some pizza. Next time you're on campus. <laughs> so who was your favorite Maryland athlete to watch while you were at UMD? Wow. Um, Albert King and Buck Williams would have been up there right at the top. But when I think about Skeets Nehemiah, you know, that I probably have to say him because he was in the purest sense, an incredible athlete. Um, you know, he went and played football afterwards, but I watched him, you know, set some records and he was, incredible. Um, there are a lot of great football players back then and great athletes, all the same, but I, I'd probably say 
Ronaldo, Skeets, Nehemiah. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite memory from attending UMD? Gosh, there are quite a few. Um, you know, I, you think about it, I came from Florida. I didn't know a single person, you know, at the university when I enrolled and, you know, made some of the best friends that I still stay in close contact with today. Um, says a lot, you know, about what a college experience can and should be. Um, and and uh, I, you know, think about just the ability to have some of those experiences um, with sports, working in the athletic department, uh, some of my professors, um, you know, ability to connect. I still even stay connected to my college um, and feel very honored and grateful for them recognizing me as a distinguished alumnus um, some years back. You know, I got a chance to go into the alumni center, Riggs Alumni Center. That is spectacular. You know, didn't have one of those like that when I was in school. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't know. Bird Stadium in Cold Field House, Woo. and it was packed. It was fantastic. Um, so those, I think, you know, are some of my great memories, but more, more because of the people, not so much of the places. Mm -hmm. So if you can choose for Oklahoma to win the national championship in any sport, which one would you choose? <laughs> That's a tough answer. That's like a catch-22 answer when we're trying to win a national championship in every sport. Um, they're so hard to win. We're going to try to win one in every sport, knowing that uh, uh, the fact that we have our chance at more of them may give us a greater chance to mo win more of them. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pick a sport because they're all – they're all special. Okay. And then lastly, and I know he's your guy, but do you ever get tired of seeing so many Baker Mayfield commercials? <laughs> um, no, because people are getting to see, you know, all sides of Baker's personality. And, um, and, and I think in some cases they're playing off his personality and he's, willing to be self-deprecating enough to allow that to happen. In fact, I, I saw one that, um, you know, just the other day was a new release of, a, of one of the commercials that played off of one of his own idiosyncrasies, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, Blake Griffin is another one that people, you know, aren't seeing it maybe as much of, but he is really good. I mean, he has become a very good actor and he he's actually doing stand-up comedy now he's a funny um, guy what's that have you seen him Hi, blake griffin I, i've seen videos of him doing a uh, comedy and all that he's really good at it and i'm i'm glad that our student athletes uh, former student athletes are getting a chance to show you know a different side of them and you know what I, I will tell you in today's really harsh sports fan world sometimes people get jealous of those that they see and they're they're they don't want to see them in that role they kind of misinterpret it it's look at 
he must be doing a good job or or the product uh, or business or company or agency that's signing him up wouldn't be offering him these opportunities. You know, he's obviously connecting with the consumer um, in a way that is productive for both. And so I know, uh, you know, his he's, he's now evolving as a quarterback. He's had many new um, coaches in each of his year, few years there. Um, and, you know, people think they're always going to be the finished product. Um, and sometimes people uh, start out and they don't have, you know, maybe as many challenges to, to address as, as some others. But every situation is different and it's not a blueprint. Otherwise, people would have figured it out and you wouldn't have some of this to just be ready made every time they draft somebody. But um, you're in professional sports and there are expectations with it. And, uh, and you know, there's not a lot of slack that people cut you. So I think he's managing it well. And um, you know, I happen to get to know him very, very well while he was here. I'm happy for him, proud of him, and I'm telling you, the best days for him are ahead. You know, he is he is the kind of gritty player that you want to have on your team. And I, I promise you, some of the people that say things, if they had a chance to pick him for their team, they'd pick him, knowing how good of a competitor that he is. He just does it a different way. Kyler Murray is doing it a different way. Adrian Peterson does it a different way. We have wide receivers right there in – in your midst, the Baltimore Ravens. You know, the you look at how many Oklahoma players are uh, shining for them. Mark Andrews, Hollywood Brown. Uh, my gosh, there's lots of guys um, along the offensive line. Ben's playing there. Orlando Brown. You know, it's it's becoming you know a little bit of Oklahoma. You know, from you know from. Uh, from Norman to Baltimore, but um, but I know you got a chance to watch Adrian when he was with the Redskins. He's now with the Lions, but uh, those guys just find a way to impact the game in their own way, and uh, it, it's been it's been a real joy to get to know them all personally. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to say that was really fun. Um, it was awesome of you to come on. Good luck to you and the rest of the Sooners. For those listening, don't forget to subscribe to the Locker Room Podcast and follow the Sports Business Society on Instagram at SBS underscore UMD. Joe, thanks again. And uh, how about we get a Maryland, Oklahoma home and home series soon? You know, we've had that before in basketball. Really? You think we got to work on that for football? Yes. Um, Yeah. Let's definitely make it happen. (laughs) It's my pleasure to, um, to be on this podcast with you. Very proud of my alma mater. Um, Still plays a role in everything I do every day of my life, you know, because it, it, a lot of it started right there in College Park. And, um, and so I'm really appreciative and grateful that you're doing this for students and, and other interested parties alike. It's, it's um, you know, it's, it's the right thing and glad that uh, you found a way to, you know, bring more awareness. Thank you.